Now, you're not going to maybe agree with what I'm about to say, but take a look at what is happening. Fifteen years ago, could you turn on the television and see three or four out of seven commercials be biracial commercials? What do you think, guys? Huh? What do you think? You want to know where society's going? Watch entertainment. Watch the profit motive. Biden is tackling the easy things. All of us want to get the virus behind us, right? So anything he does to battle the virus is universally welcome. When he starts talking about raising tax on capital gains, raising tax on ordinary income, in a recent speech he's talked about fair share. I hate that expression with a passion. What does fair share mean? I've said in your program numerous times, basically, I'm willing to work six months a year for the government and six months for myself, which means a marginal tax rate of 50%. We live in California, Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, and Reading well past that, okay? And this fair share is a bullshit concept. It's just a way of attacking wealthy people, and, you know, I think it's inappropriate. We're all going to work together and pull together. everybody it's thursday night welcome to left reckoning oh yeah we got a little bit of an echo here sorry yeah give me one second let me just fade this stuff you know that's like the first step of uh they say at of a schizophrenia starting to hear your voice coming from outside of yourself so this is freaking me out a little bit matt now right, we're we uh, we're doing okay there we go sorry about that david not to step on your intro there <laughs> <laughs> well welcome everybody it's thursday night welcome to left reckoning uh my name is david griscom and i'm joined here by the boss of the planes the frozen trunka <laughs> The king of the green, Matt Leck. The boss of the planes. I, I, I aspire to that uh, that level of uh, political power, I guess. Uh, one day, maybe. Yeah, man. Well, how are you doing tonight? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. I'm enjoying uh, what's happening uh, to Wall Street on sort of on sort of like primal level. Um, it's getting it, it's really allowing me to cycle through a lot of emotions, um, mm-hmm. a lot of sort of base hatreds. Um, you know, like you see people um that you love that are concerned about how they're going to pay for a retirement and they really think like the responsible thing is to figure out how to pick stocks and stuff like that and it's <laughs> it's a sign of a sick culture in this country and it and i yeah all these people um on just a base level and you'll get more to the details but um rah rah uh to everybody who um has been making money off speculation that are just getting ruined from this i think you know as, as much of that's happening the better yeah, it's been pretty fun to watch. Yeah, so we definitely have uh, some, what, uh, gaming GameStop, gaming Wall Street, whatever. Some people are getting screwed over. Uh, it's very fun to watch. We'll take a little bit of a dive into that. Then after that, um, we're going to be joined by the Jackman Show's Jen Pan um, for a really fun conversation on moving past the culture war to the class war. Uh, some pretty exciting news out of Austin. Uh, talk a little bit about what's going on with Chicago's and the fight of uh, those the teachers there for just basic human decency, um, and much more in the post game. Thanks everybody for joining us, man. 
so how do you even tip this off? I mean, basically this past week has been very hilarious because a lot of people all across the country have been exposed to a fact that many leftists have known for a very long time, which is that the financial world not only operates by completely different rules um, and understandings of what a safe bet is, uh, what a profitable company is, what a profitable investment is, um, that, but not that that's not only the case that this is just a ridiculous casino. And there's a lot of funny stuff about wall street. Um, for example, you know, one of my personal favorites is just how easily duped a lot of traders are. One of my favorite stories was when the long Island iced tea company, uh, which made, uh, iced tea changed their name to long Island Bitcoin. Um, their stock went up 500%, even though nothing about their company changed, they just changed their <laughs> <laughs> because a lot of people got duped into buying those stocks, right? This whole idea that the market uh, functions as this completely like rational arbiter of like what is good business savvy and what is not, you know, is basically being able to pick, um, you know, what's working and what isn't is complete BS. They pick winners and losers, and they oftentimes bend the rules um, and, and fudge the books to be able to win those kinds of bets. What we saw over this past week was a different kind. I mean, honestly, it is a little bit unique to use social media in the way that the Wall Street bets uh, people on Reddit did. Um, but you know, they're operating in much the same way that a lot of these big players operate. You make a big move, and it's, and it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, um, just to go, like, I remember short selling coming up with Bill Ackman, an investor yeah. who was short selling Herbalife because he thought it was like basically a scam, essentially. Yeah, and he, he he had to like, and it was, and it, I I think he lost money on it because it, <laughs> surprise, the stock market can't really suss mm-hmm. out scams, um, at least fast enough for Bill Ackman to make money on it. Off, on it. Um, but he had to like toe certain lines with what he can and can't do um, in terms of like market manipulation, right? But he, yeah. he was very publicly saying, I think this is bunk and I'm taking positions on it. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> and, and essentially that's what happened here was like, so, you know, for folks who don't under, I mean, I'm sure everybody at least understands that a bunch of Redditors got together and they started targeting, um, hedge funds that were very much, uh, over leveraged. They were exposed, um, on, on these shorts, particularly on GameStop and a few other companies. Uh, so Melvin Capital, which all these places have just the most ridiculous and mundane names, but Melvin Capital in particular is one of the ones that they targeted who had been shorting GameStop uh, stock. And just so people understand uh, what a short is, I'll, I'll try my best to do this very briefly. Um, but essentially what a short is, is when you borrow a stock from a broker, then you sell that stock. And then um, you, so you, you borrow stock from a broker you sell it to somebody at the price that it's at now. And then in the future, you buy that stock back and you return it to the broker. The game here is that you're hoping in that in between time that the stock price goes down so that when you're returning uh, that stock back to the broker, you've made profit, right? Uh, Because you were able to sell a lot higher than it ended up costing you. And what these companies, these hedge funds do is they just do that on a large scale, on a mass scale uh, to be able to get incredible amounts of, of profit if, if, 
uh, the stock goes down. And, you know, on an individual level, this can be an extremely risky bet because you can hold on your short for a very long time. You just have to keep on putting up more and more collateral to the broker, which means that your losses can essentially be unlimited, right? Like, so if you short a stock and the price just goes up 1000%, like you are very much screwed, right? Unlike, unlike buying a stock typically, right? Whatever you bought, that's sort of the amount that you're going, you know, that's at risk. A short, you can really be, um, you know, screwed very quickly. So what people did to Melvin Capital uh, was essentially buy, um, you know, pumping up the stock of, of uh, GameStop by buying a bunch of it. They made it so that the Melvin Capital was in a very precarious uh, position because the stock price had just exploded in value, meaning that for them to return them back to the brokers, they would have to pay a huge fee. Um, you know, they'd have to eat their losses and it could go on forever and ever and ever. So when Melvin Capital ended up just eating their losses, that actually made the price of GameStop go up even more, right? Because Melvin Capital then ended up buying a bunch more stock in GameStop, right? Um, so that's essentially what happened before all of the uh, the big moves that we've seen today with these platforms. One thing I, I heard uh, that the Redditors noticed specifically was that there that these companies had taken out more short options on these stocks than actual stocks existed to sell. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, which just goes to show how fantastical a lot of this stuff is. Oh, it's extremely fantastical. And I also have to add to for, for people who I, most people like, you should have a reaction to this that is like negative. You should be angry when you start to, because for a lot of people who might not be following this kind of like financial news, you hear about something like that and it just seems like absolutely ridiculous, right? Um, and, and for the most part, it is. Like there is, as Matt was saying, there is an opportunity to at least try to reset some kind of value in the market, but primarily it's, it's a joke. Um, but uh, I want people to understand why folks, especially like on Reddit, uh, these folks really took offense to what Melvin Capital was doing by shorting a company. Because when you short a company, it basically sends a signal to uh, investors, um, but also to other financial institutions that this company is overvalued. So don't loan the money, right? So this is something that if you, if, if you are you know, a bank that might be giving out a loan to a company and you see that there's a lot of people shorting it, you might be less likely to give them a fair rate or you're probably going to charge a lot more interest on that rate, right? So this is one of those things where because that company appears to be in in you know financial trouble or at least that this coming, it can almost become like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that's why people have such hatred uh, towards hedge funds because hedge funds control so much money that if one, you know, the people who are in control of it decide they want to make a bet like this, they want a short GameStop uh, stock, it can have massive effects on the the reality of the uh, the company itself, not just on the share price, um, because it's going to change the way that that company is acting, right? And because these hedge funds have so much capital, they really can move markets with their decisions. What happened with the with the with the Reddit stuff was essentially retail investors, people who are just buying through these apps, uh, were able to play the role that a lot of these kind of hedge funds do. Where by uh, participating in the market in such an orchestrated fashion, you basically uh, fulfill your own prophecy, right? You bet that it's going to go a certain way, and because so many other people are going with you, it ends up happening. Yeah, where you go, one you go all with uh, these stocks, I guess. Yeah, and I think. Um, we have, uh, and, and look, and here's the thing. A lot of those guys lost a lot of money. And if Matt has uh, that, that comrade uh, clip over here, 
that we have in the show notes. Oh, yes, of our friend uh, Leon Cooperman. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So a billionaire. Um, let me see. I dropped my notes to get his title. Um, he's a billionaire. He's, uh, he's a billionaire. He runs a you know, financial advisory firm. Uh, here he is today saying exactly what he thinks about all the people basically participating in the market in the same way that vultures like him participate in the market. And I just want to preface this with watch what they're doing with regards to saying people have too much money and how they might be into like yeah. Biden's ear about, hey, don't give people that $2,000. Actually, can we keep down mm-hmm. in the back? Because th- this is what he's blaming it on. People have too much money. Um, one second here. <laughs> oh, shoot. One second. Uh, crap. Well, as you're pulling it up, it's like, it's very true. Like I was going to say afterwards, like you read the financial times, wall street journal, all these publications today, like that's been the big narrative, right? Is that people will have or bored and they have too much money in their bank account, right? right. It's, it's like they're already arguing for austerity because like this is what happens when people have like the smallest amount of disposable income um, is they ruin things for the rest of them. Yeah, and here is uh, this. And this is on CNBC Today. And to my knowledge, nobody has this much of this clip yet. Biden is tackling the easy things. All of us want to get the virus behind us, right? So anything he does to battle the virus is universally welcome. When he starts talking about raising tax on capital, Biden is tackling the easy things. All of us want to get the virus behind us, right? So anything he does to battle the virus is universally welcome. When he starts talking about raising tax on capital gains, raising tax on ordinary income, in in a recent speech, he's talked about fair share. I hate that expression with a passion. What does fair share mean? I've said in your program numerous times, Basically, I'm willing to work six months a year for the government and six months for myself, which means a marginal tax rate of 50%. You live in California, Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, you're already well past that. Okay? And this fair share is a bullshit concept. It's just a way of attacking wealthy people. And, you know, I think it's inappropriate. We all got to work together and pull together. Well, and I think that that's my view. Yeah, work together, pull together. I mean, okay. work you know, together, I think it's exa- that it pretty much explains would, it. like they uh, don't like that. Uh, the idea that other people are participating. <laughs> yeah. And there's the other point in the clip where he, he also says, you know, people have the too much money sloshing around because they were given checks. And there's a contradiction there, right? Like, I think the answer is you need things like wealth taxes, which this guy famously was crying over like Elizabeth Warren's wealth taxes mm-hmm. uh, during the primary, right? Like there is too much money sloshing around with people. People like you, Leon, Mm -hmm. right? Like you have too much money slashing around. Yeah. Um, You know, (laughs) it's, I mean, it's been very funny to watch the meltdowns and and to watch people, uh, you know, especially people who cover, uh, you know, the stock market um, and finance in general, uh, basically try to argue that this has perverted everything so much. Um, As I talked about earlier, it's like, this is not an institution that has a pretty good track record at finding problems in our economy. In fact, in our lifetime, uh, you and me, Matt, it's like, it's really just been, uh, you know, a source of severe damage because what what happened in 08 uh, was you had a sector of the economy that was built on sand. And because so much of Wall Street, so much of our financial system was buying products based on the health of a, a bunch of products that were built on sand, we're talking about the housing bubble, the housing crisis. Um, you know, it, it made a contained crisis and housing prices in the United States explode into a global uh, 
you know, pandemic, uh, you know, in a pandemic, uh, you know, a global catastrophe. And, you know, and, and uh, the expansion of these extremely speculative bets on Wall Street has only grown uh, since 2008. It has not been the moment where they learned their lesson. In fact, you know, the levels of speculation we're seeing right now in the U.S. are even more insane. Uh, including things like there was supposed to 2018, there was a massive crisis on Wall Street because they were betting on the VIX rate, which essentially is like Wall Street's fear gauge. It measures like how much fluctuation there is in the market to sort of predict when there's going to be a crisis. And because people were placing bets on it, it bumped a little bit, but because it was becoming one of people's favorite indexes to bet on, uh, one day when it bumped a little bit too much, it created a full-on crisis that, again, became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, so this entire system is, has been very, very shaky. Um, and All right, we'll get to the kind of structural stuff in a second. I want to keep on track here because there's a lot mm. to talk about. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Robinhood because that's the new player. Um, and this is a tweet that was uh, retweeted by Mark Blythe that really hits, um, I think, on some of the problems of Robinhood, not just what it did, which was shutting down uh, trading on GameStop and these what people are calling meme stocks, right? Which, let's get one thing straight. That was ridiculous. That was 100% manipulation of the market. And let's understand, though, that this wasn't just a bunch of people getting mad. These relationships go much deeper. So this is Mark, this is Mark Blythe here, um, and uh, he retweeting this tweet. You could click on that for a second, man. Oh, yep. uh, if you don't understand what's happening, I'm getting feedback, Matt. Is that going live to everybody? Oh, no, it's not. It's just, but I can stop it for okay. you, too. Give me one second. Sorry, Al. There you go. If you, if you don't understand what's going, what's happening with Robinhood and Wall Street, here's a good explainer. Citadel is the hedge fund that bailed out Melvin Capital, which was short GME GameStop. They weren't just short. They sold shares over and over and over so much that they had sold 160% of the entire float short. They could only win if they bankrupted the company. Citadel is the primary market maker for all these platforms. When you buy stock, if there isn't a seller right away, Citadel acts as the market and sells it later. Same for options. They create contracts as demanded by the market. Well, they are also the market maker for Robinhood. In return, Citadel pays Robinhood for a data feed. They pay more to Robinhood on its trades than they pay any other platform. Why? Because that data tells them where the millennials are going before the market knows. What does that do? It allows Citadel to front run their trades to buy what they're buying before the millennials can get there. Citadel was losing a lot on these options, contracts. So they Robinhood, so they told Robinhood, if you want to stay in business and IPO, you do what we say and stick it to those kids. And this is really important. Um, not only because of what Robin Hood ended up doing, which was is exactly that, taking those orders, but Robin Hood has been presented to people as this kind of company. I mean, their tagline was, we're democratizing finance. Literally which, Robin Hood, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, which was you know complete BS because they weren't trying to democratize finance to help out little people. They were trying to include a bunch of people um, that could be taken advantage of. You need to understand one thing about the stock market and this entire world of financial capital. There are winners, 
But to be a winner, there has to be losers. And there always has to be people who are left holding the back. And Robin Hood has played a huge role in introducing a lot of folks um, to be willful dupes of financial capital. Now, listen, I'm sure there are some very smart people in the audience who are listening to this show and they're doing a great job on their trades and they, you know, and, you know, good on you. Right. I'm I, honestly like, I am happy for you. Like stick it to these people. If you can beat their bets, I think it's awesome. I think it's hilarious. And it's very fun. But what ends up happening is these companies like Robinhood, one, they have, uh, and we'll get into some of the lawsuits against them in a second. Um, you know, they have very unfair, actually, uh, practices compared to other companies who do similar things as Robinhood um, when it comes to the order that you basically you get the stocks in, which means that everyone else gets to buy the stocks at preferable prices before you do, right? So they're already giving people actually a bad deal. What they're doing is they're making it fairly easy um, and they're gamifying it and they're making it, um, you know, something that's digestible for, for young people who like to use an app, right? What that does is it brings in a lot of people who are watching this casino happen in front of them and say, man, all these other people are getting rich quick. I better jump in and start making some money, right? Which, again, if you can do it and it makes you money, I think that's great. But what is going to happen is people are going to get hurt and they're going to be the ones ending up holding the bag of these stocks, which have now been you know, very much inflated. People are coming in and they're buying these stocks because they're hearing from the media and everybody around them that they're only going up, not understanding the real risk that's going in. Um, and you know that's a problem in and of itself, but Robinhood in particular is a really nasty uh, company. And we have this uh, this this article from Jackman that actually breaks down uh, some of the nastier things that Robinhood has been accused of and is now facing litigation over. Uh, not just not just so people are clear, not just what they did today, shutting down the market, which was again egregious, and they should be investigated for it. Um, but they have been doing much more uh, egregious stuff too. That is not what the main story is for a lot of people today. Um, so this was published a couple of weeks ago by uh, Clark Randall and Jacobin, the trading app Robinhood takes from you and gives to the rich. Scroll down a little bit. Um, market research estimates that over 10 million Americans became first-time investors in 2020. A staggering 6 million chose to invest through Robinhood, the Silicon Valley startup. Um, I'll go down the second paragraph. Um you know, people have been warning about its mission to democratize finance because how is Robinhood getting paid? Well, they're taking advantage of folks. Most recent is this class action lawsuit filed on December 24th that claims Robinhood offsets the cost of its commission-free calling card by reselling stock orders for backdoor fees. A similar charge was settled with the SEC on December 17th, with Robinhood forced to pay out $65 millions for misleading customers about its revenue sources and failing to execute trades at quality prices. The SEC found that this later fault cost users over $34 million far exceeding any short change shavings they would have made on commissioned costs, right? So what's happening there is that Robinhood is allowing other people to basically get ahead of everybody, which means that when everyone else is buying stocks on a certain day, whatever the way the wave's going, all of these other people are coming in line first, which means they get it at the lower price and then you know are able to profit more than the people who get it on the back end, right? And that's what Robinhood is essentially doing to all these folks, mining them for information, seeing what all of these people are going to do, and then getting the big players, the old school players, the opportunity to jump ahead of everybody to make sure that they get the most gains, right? 
that's the problem uh, with Robinhood, in addition uh, to the fact that they aren't fair arbiters uh, and in the fact that they are completely in bed with all of these other companies and are going to follow their bidding instead of the bidding of their customers. Um, yeah, get out of the share here. And look, um, I think there's the thing that I just wanted to warn people about is the fact that these companies, Robinhood and Robinhood in particular, because that's been the main player. One, they were screwed up before they pulled the plug today, right? They were trying to create this the system of advantage for the people who, um, you know, are the old boys in this club. And that's the game. I mean, that's basically has been what the story has been from the get-go. They, the Wall Street doesn't like when everyone else gets an opportunity to play. But what people need to understand is the people who are giving you the opportunity to play are taking you for a ride as well. Yeah. Because this entire system is designed to screw you. The entire it, system is designed to screw you. The casino, of a few. the casino metaphor is just entirely revealing, right? They wouldn't let you in the door if this was good for you, right? Yeah. Ultimately. Um, and speaking of uh, people letting the door, I, I think this yeah. also should be brought up in context of all this stuff. Nancy Pelosi brought uh, op- bought options, so she's not shorting Tesla, which would be kind of funny. Um, <laughs> if a politician would take short positions on Tesla, maybe I'd, I'd be less uh, interested in banning uh, trading from politicians. But Nancy Pelosi bought options instead of uh, of let me share this here of uh, Tesla. Nancy Pelosi buys Tesla calls, stands to benefit from new Biden EV plan. It's not just Tesla, obviously, that's a headline one, Mm -hmm. but it's also Apple and all these other companies. And like the things people say about um, her net worth before and after she started becoming a politician are entirely relevant and disgusting um, for for somebody who's in charge of like whether you deserve $2,000 or not. Um, And I mean, look, look, she's cheated, I guess, her part for that. But I don't know. It's. It's pretty gross. And I mean, Elizabeth Warren keeps talking about her plan to ban members of Congress from trading stock. Of course. I mean, that should Mm be. We should hear more about what the like the conflict there. Like, I want to hear more upset about Pelosi from like, let's say, Warren type people who think that's a good plan. Yeah, I I think so, too. I mean, um, it's the the advantage that Congress people have. Um, to game this system is absurd. And people need to understand that it's, this is just them getting their, their payback, uh, you know, from, from basically creating a market that is impenetrable to the average person um, and benefits the small, um, in the small few. I wanted to mention, and we might have to just come back to this after, after Jen, um, that, we can talk about GameStop and how I was saying earlier how it's overvalued. No one get. I don't want to deal with a bunch of people getting mad at me who are participating in this. I'm saying the entire thing is overvalued. We're not hearing a bunch about Tesla or Shopify or Snapchat, right? All stocks that have exploded since the beginning of the um, the beginning of this crisis, right? When there has been no serious material change on their, you know, on the actual like existing economy for these corporations, right? That's all speculation. And you want to know something that's really wild. If you talk to traders, if you read the Financial Times, if you read um, or participate in conversations with or listen to, at least you can find it all online, you know, pretty easily uh, what they're talking about. All these traders know 
that the stock market right now is extremely overvalued and that there really is no reason that the few companies that are right, um, driving growth in stock right now, which are like Apple and Tesla and Spotify and all these other companies, um, that there really is no reason that they should be as va- highly valued as they are. But what keeps them highly valued is the fact that every day those traders go in and they buy more stocks for their their portfolios and for their clients, right? It's again, it's one of these self-fulfilling uh, prophecies. So people getting mad at the Redditors for participating in the same game that the rest of them playing is BS. Thinking that this is going to crash the system, I'm going to be honest with everybody, uh, is wrong, Right. Take advantage if you can and, you know, get some dough from these assholes. Be careful, uh, though. I mean, be I th- very careful. Isn't it the case that if you were going to take advantage of this, you needed to be pretty early on it yesterday? Oh, yeah. Well, that's the that's the point is like once they uh, uh, once they have that. Um, I mean, once once Melvin got out, the point of doing what they were doing had pretty much ended. Right. At that point, people are just trying to ride the wave for hearing about it late. I mean, that's essentially what happened. And that's what's and that's honestly is what's going to be the tragedy of this situation. I think 100 percent should be investigated. The fact that that they basically shut out an entire class of investors, a a class of players um, like uh, Robin Hood did. No doubt about it. but what's really tragic about this story is that the people who got in late because they're just sort of watching, um, you know, watching the story go on and they say, oh, there's a great opportunity look at, to make Look at all these cheap. headlines. Yeah. Um, those pe- are going to be the people who are going to be holding, what, $300, whatever it is. Um, you know, game stock, which you don't want to be holding at the end of the day. Right? <laughs> you want to get out. You need to sell it to somebody. And the problem is going to be when people try to sell out, um, they're going to be in trouble. Yeah, I mean, I think that's well said. I, I, unless, you know, this is what GameStop needs to become, you know, the monopoly of the future. Well, unless this is what GameStop needs to become, <laughs> to become the next, uh, you know, Bitcoin. Just have no, <laughs> no, like no connection to reality anymore. Just a pure speculative asset. That would also be very funny. Uh, <laughs> even though GameStop is a horrible company uh, and they took advantage of all of us nerds and gamers for years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as we resold our games to them yeah i resold my games for a call of duty 2 t-shirt <laughs> <laughs> jesus are you serious yeah i have that i don't know if that, i still have that shirt but yeah call of duty 2 that was a gaming piece of merchandise that i wore to actual high school so that was mm-hmm. me all right well are you ready here with jen yeah uh, we'll bring uh jen pan on she'll uh, join us now uh, perfect Hey, everybody. Uh, we're joined by uh, Brenda Jen Pan, host of one of the co-hosts of The Jackman Show and a phenomenal writer. How's it going, Jen? I'm good. Thank you guys for having me on. Yeah, Excited to have great. you. Yeah, we're really happy to have you. It's been such a funny day. I'm, uh, uh, we're all sort of exhausted, honestly, about talking about the Reddit story. I'm not sure any more like... You're exhausted? <laughs> I could go for it. It kind of started off being like the feel good story of the week, right? I'm like, I'm still, I'm still feeling enthusiastic about it. I'm like energized. I'm there. I mean, part of things annoy me about it, but that's part of what's so invigorating, I think, about it. I mean, it has been funny to watch people cry. It has been very funny to watch uh, MSNBC uh, pundits freak out about the sanctity of the market that has now been perverted. Um, it's, I mean, uh, it's funny enough to say that, but it's even funnier that they might actually believe that, uh, knowing all that they know. 
Did you guys uh, catch that some of our right wing favorites like Ted Cruz and I think Don Jr. were uh, trying to seem like they were on board with the Reddit people and um, saying things like, well, this just shows that big government and and Wall Street and big tech are, are rigging the economy against you. And it's like we don't I mean, yes, but it's it's kind of like we don't buy that you think so. Yeah. I feel like the Barstool sports guy is the savviest proponent of that line so far. I don't know if you guys are up on his sort of what he's running right now. Uh, yeah. Have you been, have, have you listened to him? I mean, I know he's been ranting about it, but I mean, how exposed do you think he is on the Reddit bets? Because he honestly is the kind of moron who would dump a lot of money into that and now be really pissed on the back end <laughs> if he's getting screwed. Now he's like freaking out that he can't log into Robin Hood and so he's ranting online or something. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, it's been a crazy day. <laughs> Let's, uh, I think a little piece of sound that's kind of related is uh, yeah. this clip of this uh, new uh, speaker. Uh, is it Jennifer Pisaki? Um, speaking yeah. about Jennifer Yellen's conflict of interest, Janet Yellen, or Janet Yellen, sorry. Um, and uh, I'm gonna, sh- I gotta do a two step process to share it with both you and the viewers. So let me start that. Here it is. Man, it's so good to have White House press briefings again. Yeah, was, where the truth is the most boring controversy ever. It's like honestly, like this is where reporters just get their slop to regurgitate out there. It's like this is not anything holy. And here we go. And, and I had a follow up on the on the markets and everything that's mm-hmm. happening with GameStop. Uh, you did mention, I believe, yesterday um, that the Treasury Secretary is monitoring the situation and she's kind of uh, on top of it. There have been um, some kind of concerns about her uh, previous engagements with Citadel and speaking fees that she has received from Citadel. Are there any plans to have her recuse herself from advising the president on uh, GameStop and the whole Robin Hood situation? Well, just to be clear, what I said was that we have the Treasury Secretary is now confirmed. Obviously, we have a broad economic team. Uh, The SEC put out a statement uh, yesterday that I referred to, but I don't think I have anything more for you on it other than to say, separate from the GameStop issue, the Secretary of Treasury is one of the world-renowned experts on markets, on the economy. Uh, It shouldn't be a surprise to anyone she was uh, paid to uh, give her perspective and advice before she came into office. Now, before you guys react to that, I just want to share um, one fact, which is the the sum total of her speaking fees that that accounts for. So she made around eight hundred thousand dollars for it. And okay, maybe she she. So the total of the last two years is about seven million. So that's about a tenth of her speaking fees. So that's not an insignificant amount. So anyway, you guys can go at it now. Well, I remember when, you know, her name was first sort of put up for Treasury Secretary and people were already bringing up the speaking fees, the Wall Street Mm -hmm. speaking fees as clearly a conflict of interest. And um, you guys probably remember that, you know, a large segment of the liberal commentariat, I guess you could say, sort of just immediately like ran to cover her and and to say, um, well, you're only criticizing her million seven million dollar speaking fees because she's a woman. And to me, that is just the most cynical deployment of identity politics that I can even think of, like running cover for somebody's Wall Street speaking fees when they're in a position to become the person who is probably more responsible than like any other policymaker in the U.S. 
for uh, shaping and steering fiscal policy. I mean, it's crazy. And it's it's really funny that in this particular moment on this day, we get this information that one of her big donors is Citadel. Mm-hmm. And and I just I, I want to remind people just if they weren't watching the beginning of the show today too, that you know Citadel pays Robin Hood a substantial amount of money for a data feed, uh, which allows it to act in opposition to all of the people who are um, you know trading on Robin Hood so that they can put themselves into an extremely profitable position. Uh, so to act like any connection to this company to investigate this this very particular and specific instance to say that that's non-material is complete nonsense right but it would be it would be nonsensical to say it was immaterial even if it was just like Janet Yellen was like good friends with one of the board members to say that somebody getting paid nearly 1 million dollars um is is not a problem oh it's because she's a girl boss and she deserves the money right right I'm, like i'm sure you know janet is a you know is a very smart and accomplished person um you know whatever uh, that's that's all well and good but i do like the fact that i live in a democracy and anybody who is supposed to be charged with publicly regulating these companies and looking out for her best interest it is completely imbalanced to ask questions about somebody getting nearly a million dollars from them and i also want to add you know just to go back to what we were saying earlier about um you know your various right-wing figures from ted cruz to barstool sports guy like suddenly trying to act like they're populist um of course, you know, we're in the U.S. We know that the Republican Party is the party of big business. They're not looking out for people on Reddit, uh, let alone, you know, your average working person. But when the Janet Yellen stuff happens uh, and the Democrats just kind of, uh, you know, mm. circle the wagons, um, mm-hmm. that gives them more ammunition. And like, I think that's the thing that like really, really like really like gets to me, you know, like, don't don't let these fake right wing populists have the upper hand when it comes to attacking Wall Street. Yeah, uh, somebody uh, tweeted out that a NPR guest today made a comparison to Gamergate. And I thought that was really annoying that, you know, th- th- that comparison would be made. But um, it strikes me that like, if the it's the game because I, I think the fundamentals are different, right? The anti-feminist media thing versus anti-Wall Street. I think the the Gamergate lends itself more to reaction. Um, but if the Democrats screw it up, then yeah, there's no there's there's, there's and which they very easily could already with this yelling stuff. Then then yeah, you might have a something that could funnel people to the right. I have to make a confession, which is that I never really understood what Gamergate was, and I don't think I understand still despite having watched the Law & Order SVU episode that was based on Gamergate. But I gathered that there was some, you know, uh, online harassment of, I guess, women journalists in kind of the tech sphere, right? Basically, yeah, exactly. Right. So what is the connection to GameStop that Wall Street bros are getting harassed? <laughs> it was like, you're, it was, yeah, it was your hara- literally you're harassing hedge funds, basically. I think that's okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Like, like th- these are not the same things um, all, at, at all. But like, as far as like the, the culture, trying it, like these people like Barstool mm-hmm. trying to take, make it into a cultural vehicle, it's like the what stands in their way is the Democrats failing. Like mm-hmm. uh, if, if they, we actually respond to this moment of revealed absurdity um, by, if, if that party does with something that actually you know, does something about it, then, you know, Ted Cruz and uh, Trump Jr. won't be able to make out of it. On the other hand, if it's just like Janet Yellen can speak to whoever she wants to and, you know, cash these checks, we're going to have a real, real problem on our hands. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's just like, I mean, honestly, like Janet Yellen is not somebody I would have involved in any Bernie Sanders cabinet or in any like even progressive candidate, even a Warren candidate, uh, you know, cabinet for God's sakes. Um, But the fact that (laughs) they don't even have a better defense, like there have been corrupt, uh, you know, officials who have gotten into high positions of power in cabinets, right, who have severe conflict of interest. And they come up with, you know, stories or kind of defenses for that, or even just say, I'll recuse myself for these kind of things. The fact that uh, because of like, woke neoliberalism they think that they can actually just sidestep pretty serious uh, you know allocations and relationships uh by just saying you know it's, it's about time that women get paid for the work it's like you know again what you know yes but nobody honestly earns a million dollars there's no speech that it's actually so good that you should make eight hundred and eighty thousand dollars. that is a payment and that is a bribe and that is a bribe that is that is payback for what you did uh at the fed and this is going and this is uh you know a down payment on what we hope that you're going to do for us in the future to act like we're all stupid like uh, this is legalized bribery everybody understands it that's why you invite these people to do this mm-hmm. um, you know it's like to act like we're all so stupid out here just mouth breathers not understanding this insanely clear open air corruption <laughs> operation yeah i mean when you put it that way i sometimes think back to 2016 unfortunately and you know that democratic primary and um the sort of same dynamic played out because Bernie criticized Hillary Clinton for taking vast amounts of money from Wall Street. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of when I think you started to see the roots of this sort of, well, like if you criticize Hillary Clinton for taking Wall Street money, isn't that a little sexist? Didn't she earn that money? And um, I think I think the ploy is really wearing thin at this point. Like I remember in 2016, a lot of people, a lot of people were already calling bullshit. um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, I think people wanted to be very earnest also about talking about sexism And, you know, well, we don't like we know that Hillary Clinton is subject to double standards as, you know, a woman politician and trying to be sensitive about that. But at this point, it's like we know what you're doing and it doesn't work. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sometimes hopeful like that, too. I mean, I remember the whole like, was it if you tax Wall Street, you won't end racism line? Was that Mm. a classic? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, If you break up the banks, that won't end racism. Right. It's like. (laughs) Um, And so now like the the way and this kind of brings me to this Joe Biden um, clip here where the the phrase structural racism and uh, people should check out Jen's uh, writing for uh, Jacobin because a lot of it is illustrative on this point uh, and these sorts of topics. But they're using the phrase structural racism and and then he'll immediately talk about hate, which like I, I feel like we're kind of moving away from structural racism again. But here's Joe Biden from, I believe this was, yeah, the Democratic National uh, Convention here. Uh, one second. Just a week ago yesterday was the third anniversary, maybe George. Maybe George Floyd murder was a breaking point. Maybe John Lewis is passing the inspiration. But however it's come to be, however it's happened, America's ready, in John's words, to lay down, quote, the heavy burden of hate at last. And to end the hard work of rooting out our systemic racism. No, I think he kind of fumbled the line there a little bit too, maybe. But like, 
Uh, oh, actually, let me just play a little bit more. Uh, sorry, because um, he what he follows us up with is the hate part, and I think that's kind of relevant. You know, American history tells us that it's been in our darkest moments that we've made our greatest progress, that we found the light. In this dark moment, I believe we're poised to make great progress again. Oh, okay. Well, I guess it was the other clip where he mentions hate, but um, where he's talking, which we'll play a little bit later, where he is um, talking about... um, Let me get off of... (laughs) He did sound like he said something about hate. Maybe like I missed earlier. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, no, yeah. no. I, I, I definitely heard the word hate. Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, like, so the structural racism isn't like about people having too much hate in their hearts, or is it? I, you know, I mean, obviously, I, I, I don't think it is. Um, but I have noticed that structural has often come to mean just like very or extremely so when people say structurally racist or structural racism so often they they're really just saying something is really really racist or like very seriously importantly racist right um and i i think that there is so there's two things going on i think there's the sort of liberal sleight of hand which i think is what you're getting at with biden where he can kind of invoke phrases like structural racism um but he's really actually talking about sort of you know interpersonal feelings um, or whether you hate or whether you don't hate. Um, But I think I do think also that the term structural is broad enough that even even a lot of times on the left, it's not actually clear what people are referring to. Mm. So I don't know. Like, do you guys sense that as well? Uh, that's interesting. I even I I've I've mainly fo- fixated on the thing where it's you know we understand race uh, racism as like a massive structure like created by capitalism, right? I mean, maybe that's a little bit reductive, but I feel like somehow and that's what it's supposed to mean, and then somehow it comes up through the Democrats, and they're like, okay, that's safe enough for us to to use. It's not mm-hmm. really going to get the point across enough and we'll we, it, we can basically just have that and just denude it of the actual meaning. Right, totally. Yeah, um that that reminds me of how over the summer all of these corporations that wanted to sort of express how like woke they were mm-hmm. um suddenly started condemning s- systemic or structural racism like on their Instagram feeds, which of course is again so broad or so general of a term that they can conveniently like sort of not implicate themselves in systemic racism right yeah, yeah. like the nfl having end racism behind the end zone Which now after joke, they yeah. literally blackballed the guy for speaking out about racism right right or amazon being like we condemn systemic racism when you know they treat their warehouse workers um all their workers actually like total shit mm-hmm. yeah or it occurs to me joe biden himself where he's ta- telling like black leaders including for the NAACP, like can we just cool it on defund the police and blm before the georgia elections um mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's like deny, like, let's, uh, you know, play homage, you know, pay homage to like this idea, right? And to, and to create racism into something that it's almost ethereal, right? It's like almost like a spiritual force. And once you do that, it's actually something that you can never touch, right? Mm-hmm. If like racism is just like something that's like in people's souls and you have to hope that like through prayer and like hope and, you know, for from reading white fragility enough times <laughs> it will go away, Um 
right? Then you just will never be able to touch it. Instead of actually recognizing its very significant and 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 continuous role in like American uh, capitalism, also global capitalism, obviously, um, as something that has developed out of a need uh, to profit off of people in general, but also mm-hmm. extra on certain people. You know, so what the, the Field Sisters line on this is perfect. It's like, you know, some people think that American slavery was a system to uh, create racism. It's like, no, American slavery was a system that was designed uh, to produce cotton. And right. racism was one of the byproducts and mechanisms by how that system functioned. But its goal was to produce cotton. And what American liberalism has done very um, well, I have to say, like at least the public understanding of these issues is completely sidestep. Uh, the economic reality, the capitalist reality of the system, and to create something that in people's minds, again, is like the spiritual force almost. It's something immaterial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Matt, do you have do you have that Joe Biden uh, clip from the NAACP? Uh, yes, I do. Give me one because second. I, I, I think you were starting to hit on it when we were talking about what happened over the summer um with uh with all these corporations you know signaling to, in support of black lives matter um you know and then i mean what was it a few years ago with d ray uh when he was i can't remember what credit card company um I think it was well fargo like this is the credit card for activists that was uh, that was such an incredible moment um and it's like people especially people who um who i think have just gone so far in their crit. Like you can get too fixated on criticizing like wokeness. Mm-hmm. On the- Some people on the left do. And again, I think it's a pretty small portion in like the overall population, but there are people who get too fixated on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they miss that. It's like, just because people are participating in and co-opting it, these corporations right. are doing it doesn't mean that the entire project is wrong or anything like that. But it is very interesting how successful yeah. um, a lot of these major corporations have been in incorporating a lot of activist language, in mm-hmm. incorporating it in a lot of their, their cultures while still maintaining the same kind of systems. Like nothing functionally changes for like the workers, except that they have to go to more uh, trainings. And we'll get to that in one second. If you have that, do you have that clip, Matt? Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, I think this 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 really illustrates it really well with our our brand new president, um, who's going to fix all of these issues. Here he is, you know, coming at the NAACP. This was a leaked Zoom meeting where he actually loses it. Like he loses it so much. Uh, the thing that is funny about Joe Biden is like he he has a very short temper, but he's very well handled. Um, but this was one of those moments where you know it came out in public, and the NAACP, if I remember correctly, was basically just giving him a very soft. Uh, you know, demand saying like, we want to see more people of color represented in your cabinet, right? And Joe Biden completely flips out and spends his entire time attacking them for demanding all this stuff from them. But in particular, he tells them that things are better now. And you will never guess what it is that Joe Biden says signals the fact that racism is being dealt with in the United States. Now, you're not going to maybe agree with what I'm about to say, but take a look at what is happening. Fifteen years ago, could you turn on the television and see three or four out of seven commercials be biracial commercials? What do you think, guys? Huh? What do you think? You want to know where society's going? Watch entertainment. Watch the profit motive. Why are these commercials so many Mm -hmm. biracial? The yeah. young generation is changing. Yeah. I mean, 
I mean, you could tee off on that. It's, I mean, it's, it's so good. It is funny. I have to say that, like, you know, liberals made so much fun of Trump for watching too much television, and here is supposed like, the to be the television to president. Yeah, you know, the antidote to that saying to, to NAACP: watch television and check out the. Commercial. That's four out of seven. I swear, <laughs> four out of seven with biracial couples. What What is a biracial commercial like? <laughs> <laughs> That's my first question. <laughs> I, mean, I think he means that there's just like, in addition to a white person, it's somebody who's it's also white. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Right. So not even in couples. It's just like right. you're both enjoying <laughs> yeah. Old Navy together. Right. 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 Oh, man. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I, I hadn't seen that clip. Um, and I feel like that is a sort of perfect example of Bidenism um, that <laughs> he he's being very genuine there, I think. Um, but I, I also think, you know, on... On this issue of kind of the demand that was brought to him of like, we need, you know, we want your cabinet to be diverse or like we want it to like look more like America. Mm. Um, I think that's all well and good. But I also think I I mean, I, I don't think that is actually a demand that is um, that is really so radical, you know, and I don't think that a lot of people I, I don't think that a lot of working people in America really care that like Lloyd Austin is black, you know, Um mm. I, I I mean, I, I understand that, you know, those types of positions do have a kind of like symbolic or, you know, emotional um, effect on a lot of people. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, you know, by bi- biracial commercials, like not that high up on my list of priorities and mm-hmm. uh, like a diverse like Department of Defense, also not really that high <laughs> up, to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, what's yeah, interesting dude. about that whole thing is like those black leaders aren't. I mean, some of them do like request you know certain you know diversity and leadership, um, but they also don't stop there. They say like let's do democracy reform. So even like those leaders he's talking to uh, see beyond that stuff, mm-hmm. and it's amazing how much currency he still thinks it has. No, I mean I think that's that's a it's definitely a good point, and it's like. The, one of the issues, too, especially when we talk um, about what is happening in most people's like what institution do most people interact with in their daily life? It's not the government uh, in this country. Uh, it's their workplaces. Um, and what we have seen from, um, you know, the what you know the diversity and in, industry in general um, has been to turn these very systemic criticisms, not to use a word that we were just criticizing earlier, but these systemic criticisms about the inequities of this society and to turn those into individual problems, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where it's like, or okay, managerial projects, really. Mm-hmm. Manage, mm-hmm. Managerial projects, yeah, but it's also like the manager being able to you know, force more diversity training in the right. workplace, right? To say, oh, it's your personal attitudes that are the problem. It's not the board of, of, you know, of Amazon. Uh, it's not Jeff Bezos. Mm-hmm. It's not Google, right? It's not the C-suite at Google. It's actually like all the people on the on the ground floor that are the problem. yeah don't look mm-hmm. at bill gates did you see the books that he recommended this year <laughs> what did he recommend i want to know i think a new jim crow might have been on there um, oh really so, okay yeah he's really getting read up <laughs> no white fragility yeah <laughs> that's exactly. next year <laughs> um uh yeah i mean you know one thing i i, I want to um cite also yeah we talk about structural racism and maybe this is a little bit of field but like um, citations needed kind of, I was listening to that recently and that, that they brought up the structural racism thing the other day. So I, I want to, um, cite them, but, um, 
like the way we're not a, he's the bro, what a pro, what um, policies is Biden really attacking any of these things in a structural way really <laughs> right like I can't think of an area that he really even approaches it like the the executive orders he's done on immigration like the most salutary thing is uh, as far as I can tell I mean the DACA stuff and um, uh, the uh, enforcement priorities which you know like uh, leashes ice a little bit but like these aren't systemic things at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he recently I saw released um, with Susan Rice a kind of like laundry list of executive orders that he's, I guess, now pushing out or about to, you know, get going. And um, they were all sort of grouped under the rubric of like, these are the big racial equity things that I'm going to do. And like, none of them were bad. I mean, I think one was working with uh, the HUD to sort of um, audit and eliminate, um, you know, discrimination in housing, Mm -hmm. all well and good. Like that's, that's good. You know, Um, Mm -hmm. I think another one was, um, oh, um, uh, banning private prisons, which is great, you know? Uh, And then the last two were like respecting tribal sovereignty. And then he wanted to do something to like combat. He wanted to condemn xenophobia and racism against Asian Americans. And, you know, on those last two things, like, they're great, um, but they could also be very vague and mean nothing (laughs) because Mm. they're more about, like, acknowledging or recognizing, I think, than, I mean, the tribal sovereignty thing might go far. We will see about that. Um, I mean, but uh, oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. I know. I was just going to say tribal tribal sovereignty is somebody that 100% needs to happen, but I'm going to tell people who aren't familiar with this or don't follow native politics very closely. This is the buzzword we get from every one of these assholes when they come into power. You know, what's the, what's the George Bush thing? Sovereignty means sovereignty, right? Never made fun of him for saying that. Like, they all make overtures uh, that they're going to deal with this issue at the beginning because who wants to say, no, I'm not giving the native people's tribal sovereignty. I'm going to reject them. Anyways, I didn't mean to cut you no, off for that. No, no, I want to make really- that point clear. Yeah, that's a really good point that uh, you like, again, it's one of those things that sounds good um, and politicians pay lip service to over and over. But when you look at, you know, the like how how native communities are doing right now, um, especially in the pandemic, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you know, (laughs) obviously acknowledging tribal sovereignty really only goes so far. Right. Um, And then like related to that on his last point of condemning racism against Asian Americans, like, sure, that's great. Um, But he basically already did that by saying Mm. that he was going to do it. And, you know, by saying, you know, Trump shouldn't have said China virus. And so I guess his job is done. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And like, even a private prison's good, but like, that was just something that was expected Hillary to do in 2016. And like, it seems now that it's just a way to de emphasize mass incarceration right like that's if you want to talk about structural racism mm-hmm. let's let's like make amends there joe and uh, i mean uh, yeah he doesn't seem to be it's let's let's emphasize the private prison thing because I, that's it, right you know. and then and then of course you know when it comes to what i think are pretty big structural reforms such as medicare for all mm-hmm. nowhere to be found on the agenda <laughs> and you know like i mean Raising the minimum wage, like he has sort of um, obviously he has indicated his support for that. It looks like um, congressional Democrats are trying to move forward with that. Um, But again, for some reason, you know, he doesn't count that as part of a program of racial equity, although we know that that is one of the policies that would do more for, you know, working class black and brown Americans than uh, I mean, dare I say, you know, (laughs) acknowledging, you know, Asian anti-Asian racism or whatever. 
I I think that's yeah exactly and 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 I think what we're dancing around is is two things one in the government and one in corporate and uh, let me see if I can phrase this in the right way what you get for the Democrats is in opposition to the Republicans honestly it's like the Democrats and the Republicans functionally are going to do fairly similar things in office right yeah. uh, which is very little for working people um, and price and benefits for whatever section of the the ruling class is more favorable to them at the time what the Democrats do do is they acknowledge problems right and um, that's something that Joe Biden actually says earlier in the NAACP um, leak is that words matter what the president says matters right so Joe Biden will acknowledge climate change will uh, acknowledge structural racism We'll acknowledge all of these problems. We'll acknowledge the fact that working people aren't getting paid their fair share, right? But when it comes to action, you don't get very much, right? So it's symbol and symbolic there. And what we're seeing too in the corporate world, in the uh, the ads, uh, which Joe Biden is talking about, is uh, you know a push for a you know a more just society. I mean, people are in the ads are healthy and are taken care of, have their needs met, right? They're presenting a world that is better, right? So they're selling us a desire that we as a society, I think, have and comes from, you know, and it's the correct one and a genuine one, which is to live in a, you know, a beautiful American society, a multiracial society where everybody's taken care of and people aren't being thrown out of their homes in the middle of a pandemic. People aren't worried about getting basic medicine. Uh, People aren't worried about, uh, you know, their children being sent off into another war. People aren't worried that their child will never have a fulfilling life because they will constantly, you know, working for a boss, right? What both of these, um, systems, the government and the corporate world have done very well, have been defined a very organic and true, I think, desire that people are waking up in this country and really starting to demand and advocate for. And we're advocating it for it in our own ways. Um, and and the biggest problem, and this is to sort of move it to where I was hoping we could get this conversation for a little bit. For most people, when they think about politics, um, politics, the way that people like consume politics and think about politics is through culture, right? Mm. It's like a cultural thing um, instead of, you know, an action and hell has, it obviously has nothing to do with the economy in most people's imaginations, right? So what they're doing is they're finding this kind of political demand and they're mediating it through culture and they're mediating it through, you know, for, through media and, 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 uh, and all of this, right? And the real struggle that I think we have right now is to try to find a way uh, to take the actual desire in society um, that is being just used to benefit the worst offenders uh, in society and also the you know the worst systems in society um, and trying to find a way to motivate that to use into the actual struggle that we need, which is class struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, I... I think one huge problem is that the the Democrats and the Republicans, and actually here I'm going to mostly blame the Democrats, had a huge hand in creating this problem because for the last, you know, 40 or whatever, 40 or 50 years, at least in the U.S., the two parties have been converging on economics, mm-hmm. which means that the Democrats have been moving right on economics. But at the same time, the two parties have been moving apart on tr- on, on culture stuff, Right. Um, I mean, you know, you have the Republicans who have sort of gone, you know, full throttle with their culture war against abortion, against, you know, gay marriage, um, name, name, you know, whatever right wing cause you can think of. Um, and then the Democrats, I think, have responded in kind where, you know, um, I mean, obviously, Planned Parenthood is great. Um, we need to fund Planned Parenthood. You know, they're they are very important. But 
all of these democratic um, institutions and apparatuses have sort of circled the wagons and made those issues sort of come to the fore as well. Mm -hmm. So at this point, you have two parties that both, you know, take money from Wall Street, essentially. Um, and the thing the thing that differentiates them is really the cultural stuff. And that's that's it. I mean, so, you know, if if you are a person who um, who, you know, is interested in a more left economic program, like where are you going to go? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, like for us, like we probably end up voting for Democrats like half the time, um, sort of against our <laughs> better judgment or, you know, as sort of a lesser of two evils. Um, but I think a lot of people are getting left out of the political process. Yeah, I mean, th there's definitely no doubt about that. And it yeah, and I think you're right. Like, it's definitely true to put the the onus there on the the Democratic Party, because at least like on some level, and it was it was very um, shallow at that when it existed on any level. Uh, but on some level, they were supposed to be the party that's standing up for working people. Right. What's amazing in the parts of the country that you know I'm from, the South and Texas, is that the Republicans play better working class politician. Uh, like we're working class politics on TV, obviously in office, like the complete, the complete opposite. Um, it's very funny, like especially um, in, in a lot of those states, the people who the Democrats put up are always, uh, you know, these kind of characters uh, who are very, very clearly uh, silver spoon lawyer characters. And the people who the Republicans put forward, uh, I'm taking people like Ted Cruz, Tim Scott, Lindsey Graham are the same character, but they play up this kind of like, I'm a guy who knows how to get things done. I work like it's the same thing, um, but it's presented in two very different ways. Um, and the reason for that is because the Democratic Party, like even aesthetically, doesn't want to portray itself as like the working party, at least uh, in mm -hmm. areas I know better, which are the South. Like they want they put on this whole kind of like, oh, you know, we are the, you know, the kind of urban understanding of politicians who are the future of this country, uh, for, you know, which if you're uh, like just somebody working, it's just like, yeah, screw you. I don't want you to represent me mm -hmm. yeah i mean that's mm -hmm. like the democratic leadership council shift in the 80s right like we're gonna be uh, the, the uh you guys on the jackman show had a recent episode on the pmc right um we're going to go all in for the pmcs and well like this is where we end up i mean it, it seems like this is just a fruition of that strategy right um i mean you know this is such a boring thing to say i feel but i i think that what the left and you know to whatever extent the democrats uh are interested in this project of reclaiming working class votes um we re we just really need to foreground bread and butter issues i think mm -hmm. and i know that sounds like so boring um but you know we have all of these polls that show that the things that non-voters are interested in are basically more government services you know mm -hmm. uh, people are interested in a higher minimum wage i mean that's not really a government service but you know people are interested in um social provision people are interested in uh healthcare people are interested in um you know uh childcare free education education. Um, and I think that the culture war stuff, I think that you're totally right, that um, that's kind of how people have come to understand and internalize politics. Um, but I, I, I guess I just feel like lots of people, and especially the people who aren't voting right now, are not so wedded to that stuff that they're not going to get on board with a strong economic program. And honestly, aside from Bernie and like a few other, you know, politicians who have kind of come in his wake, like no one has tried since basically the 1960s. 
Yeah, and I feel like there's a, there's a, an alternate title for this ep- episode is going to be a specter of a backbone is haunting the Democrats. <laughs> and it's like you have Warnock and Ossoff on a call earlier this afternoon mm. saying like, hey, we need to actually get this stuff out because we you, Joe, promised it on the campaign mm. trail, remember? Oh, God, so it's yeah. Like, there's certain even like I, I especially Ossoff, I wouldn't expect him to actually do that. Except this is just where this is just necessity now. Like, mm. and and hopefully that's what's happening is like you hear this new attempt at bipartisanship um, that Biden's going to happen, but you know we're, we're going to cut down the fourteen hundred a little bit more. Um, but you already have de- other senators leaking if uh, that like we don't expect bipartisanship to be possible. So so how I I mean I think we're going to be disappointed but um i saw i got a little bit uh, no, i think that the 1400 the 1400 just like completely gives me the chills and i mean i think it's because i think it's because we sort of knew that the democrats might cave or might compromise but the way that they justified rolling back to the 1400 was sort of like you're stupid you didn't see that 600 yeah. plus 1400 equals 2000 and it just like oh my god no you know like if you had just been like if you had just been totally um monstrous and been like we changed our minds obviously that would have been bad but to kind of like insinuate that well we no we are doing the right we are doing what we said we would like jesus i cannot think of anything more alienating than that yeah it, it just my like democrats they're more concerned with managing democracy than cultivating it yeah. is really yeah. the problem that's i mean that's the line and like i mean this is just like i i want to say one quick thing on, on the culture stuff is that one is like uh, of course, uh, Jenny, you're 100% right that uh, the bread and butter economic issues 100% transcends that. And the and and you're right. And the reason that, though that the Democrats lean so much on the culture stuff is because they are so bought out by the interests that are threatened by that, right? Right, right. Um, and and the the culture stuff is completely um, you know vapid, and that's why it doesn't play, and that's why they are constantly in danger of losing um, you know power in places that they should hold it. Can I just say though, um, it's worked the last two primaries. I mean, um, it, but it they, works with Democratic. It works with right. Democratic voters. Yeah. That, but that's and a big that's problem. problem. Yeah, right? Right. 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 your Democratic voters, the people who vote in the primary, are a very different category than the people that that we're that we're talking about. And I think it's mm-hmm. also really important that you know Jen was mentioning the non-voters because that's the class mm-hmm. that was like such a key part of the Bernie Sanders mm-hmm. like strategy. And it's something that oh, just because people have had to deal with Bernie Sanders losing in the primary twice people have almost immediately dropped that as understand like that is like the key uh to winning that is the whole idea behind this movement is to bring in those non-voters mm-hmm. um i will i will say this in this 1400 dollars fiasco is another really horrible example of this what the democratic party has has done i say this coming from where uh, you know i come from you know i grew up poor in the south i know a lot of people they don't vote and they you talk to them and this is why i believe in this project that's why i believe in in socialism and, and in the future because i know that it's out there but you talk to people and they're like yes i i hate the boss. Yes, I think it'd be greater if I own my own business. Yes, I think we should have Medicare for all. Right. And then you say, okay, you know, like let's do something. But um, but what you always hit, and this is the hardest thing that we have to break through, is this wall. And I call it like it's it's a political depression. Mm-hmm. And and it's very apt and it's very much so there's the problem, so there's people who always push that the working class is like false consciousness, they don't understand their interests. You know, they actually like very correctly make the assessment that participating in politics or doing any of these things is very unlikely to end in their victory, right? Because what they've seen in their entire lives has been not things uh, getting better, not even things staying the same, things getting 
getting worse, mm -hmm. right? And the people who are making things getting worse being the people in power, both Democrats and, and Republicans. So what we have to do is the bread and butter issues, but also start finding a way to get people out of that political depression, which means, by the way, um, not selling people. Uh, you know, not tricking people, not telling people that things are more possible in the short term than they are. Like, it's like you really have to build up the confidence to do what is ne what is necessary. I have a question for you. So in the South and in Texas, um, are, are the people you're talking about uh, turned off by just candidates having the Democrat by their name? I mean, it, it depends, uh, you know, like, I mean, Austin's a different, uh, I'm from Austin and I also live in South Carolina. Right. Um, so Austin's a little bit of a different story in, in South Carolina for sure. Uh, because it's like, the, I mean, it's because of, it's because of the culture stuff. It's like Democrats are weak and they're lawyers. I mean, especially in South Carolina, like they're like, they, they dress and they act like your boss. They act like the person who looks down on you. Yeah. You know, they, 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 they do it to themselves. Uh, with the way that they campaign in, in that state in, in particular. Um, yeah. And even the people who they do vote for, who are Democrats, they're always, they do everything that they can to say, oh, I'm not like uh, the national Democrats, right? I'm a very different character, which can sometimes mean that they're conservative and most, of, most often does. In North Dakota, that's Heidi Heitkamp. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing is, you also get, uh, you know, with the Democrats too, it's not only that they're doing the bad culture stuff, but that they're wishy-washy. It's like, oh, why would I vote for this guy? Exactly. Um, who's not going to deliver anything to me, mm -hmm. uh, anything for me either, right? They're going to give me the same thing. Might as well just do, be a part of the team that's going to win. At the end of the day, there's a part of it that people like, that no one likes to pick the losing horse, mm -hmm. uh, even if it doesn't really affect their life. Uh, and that's, the, that's definitely something to, to consider. But I mean, at the end of the day, like, I don't think it's worthwhile for the socialist left to figure out a winning strategy for the Democratic Party. Uh, what, we need, what we need to be doing is finding organic folks uh, from those communities to start w running and believing themselves to win, right? Because, you know, whatever whatever PR firm the Democratic Party is cooking up in South Carolina um, is not, it's not be working. <laughs> not to not to rant on too long about South Carolina. Um, but, you know, like, look at the new head of the DNC, right? Mm -hmm. Jamie Harrison, who raised more money than any candidate ever um, in a Senate race and still lost by 11%, right? And then they're like, oh, this person needs to be the future of the party. The mm -hmm. Democratic, and uh, th this is something I just keep on reminding people, the Democratic Party is just as happy to be able to fundraise out of power as they are to be in a very limited power situation as they are right now. And yeah. you need to understand that if you want to beat them, uh, that they aren't going to, they they will actually just shoot themselves in their foot like they are doing with these checks right now. Yeah, I I think like the Trump era wasn't a problem really for Nancy Pelosi. I think it was really good for a lot of those type of Democrats because they could they could pose in a lot of ways. And now I I mean if you're interested in Democrats having evidence and case studies of Democrats failing working people, I think we're in for like a uh, you know salad long days. night. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, the reason I asked the question about whether you thought, you know, voters in sort of rural or traditionally conservative areas would just be turned off by, you know, the little D next to anybody's name is yeah. because um, on the Jacobin show a few episodes ago, episodes ago, Paul Prescott was talking about ballot initiatives, and he, he was looking at one in Arizona, which was a tax the rich initiative. And Arizona, you know, is a red to purple state. Mm -hmm. um, but this ballot initiative did great. And um, one of his hypotheses was that it's because it 
wasn't associated with the Democrats. And I think you can see a sort of similar phenomenon in Florida, right, which voted for Trump, but also passed a $15 minimum wage ballot initiative. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that these are um, really interesting examples of, I guess, um, you know, what we might call like bread and butter, like left demands that actually pick up steam in sort of unexpected places. And um, David, actually, when you were on the Jacobin show for New Year's Eve, we talked a little bit about the Medicaid expansion in Idaho, which is another example of a ballot initiative Mm. in Idaho is like the deepest red state. So like that shouldn't have flown at all. And mysteriously or not mysteriously, I mean, we know why it did, but Mm -hmm. um, unexpectedly it did. Yeah. And, you know, and as I said there, you know, props to, to Luke Mayville, uh, my former professor for, for pushing for that. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and it's, and it's been very successful, uh, but I will say even in Idaho, it's been an uphill fight because you then have to deal with the, the government, which is trying to undermine it. I mean, it's the same reason, um, though, that like Adolf Reed picked South Carolina, uh, very recently to launch his, uh, Medicare for all campaign. Like Adolf Reed is working, uh, to organize communities around that one single issue. Um, and he picks South Carolina strategically because it has a lot of influence on the primaries and also, uh, as a potential state that like desperately needs that and that you could really, uh, bring a lot of folks together. Mm-hmm. I think the bread and butter stuff is, is a hundred percent on. Before before we go, I just wanted to mention, you know, one quick thing on that, because it just reminded me of like my own life. Um, you know, I grew up a poor kid in the South and I, I was I, I was a, a Republican uh, when I was 13, 14, which is embarrassing. It just shows how much of a nerd I was that I was paying attention to politics and I felt the need. Uh, I grew up in. A de- Why were you a Republican, though? Uh, like, did I, you just like to shoot a gun or something? No, I, mean, I grew up in a Democrat. <laughs> my, my, my parents, you know, rebellion. Democrats. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, of course. It was it was rebellion, but it was also like these people like just are not looking out for you and just recognizing um, being exposed to it's like, yeah, you know what? All of these, um, you know, like Bill Clinton screwed over the the working class or whatever. I was very stupid to be convinced by morons like Sean Hannity that it was the Republican Party uh, that was understood economics, understood the only way to fix it was to put everybody uh, on an even playing field and let them hash it out, right? What changed my mind was literally every issue, right? Dude, <laughs> I think that there was right. like, it was like everything. That's all? <laughs> everything was like, everything was like, you know, sort of like cultural or like systemic criticism, right? Sort of vague stuff. But did I support minimum wage increase? Yes. Did I support gay marriage? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, did I think that, you know, like we grew up on welfare and food stamps and I think those programs need to be cut. No. And, you know, it was just because I was a young kid with the undeveloped brain that I didn't put those things together. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I always hold that, you know, close to me to, to understand that like, you know, a lot of people go into these things with their allegiances, not really tied actually to those material policies, which means that, uh, and I did a video for Jacobin on this. That's why you should never think about politics in red states versus blue states. Because if you think that people in that part of the country that are different than you, I'm talking to people who live in like blue states, um, they really aren't working class people, uh, different cultures, accents, foods, whatever, but people are all dealing with the same issues and they really do have the same kind of feelings about it. The difference between uh, people who grew up in blue states versus red states is that gets mediated to them um, through different avenues. So you grow up in, in, in South Carolina, you're like, okay, I'm poor. Okay. All the rich people are Republicans. That mean, must mean that they get it a little bit more and like they have a better understanding of the economy, right? If you grow up in a different kind of community, you're like, okay, you know, the smart people all think this way, right? The, the teachers in my community all think this way, right? So it gets mediated through different sources. Um, and what we have to do is 
smash that mediation and get the, the socialists in there to be able to get people understanding their certain plights and the issues that are important to them um, through a kind of socialist lens instead of what is being pumped into them every day. 100%. Um, that That is the project ahead. And um, of course, it is very much an uphill battle. I mean, you, you had mentioned, you know, the Bernie Sanders campaigns, which were obviously, you know, amazing and inspiring, um, but at the end of the day, did not draw out quite as many of the non-voters that, you know, we were hoping or planning mm-hmm. on getting. Um, it's it's just a really hard, and I don't think that was through any sort of fault of the campaign necessarily. I mean, mm-hmm. we can do the kind of like Monday night quarterbacking, like <laughs> all we want. Um, I, I don't think, I don't think it was through a fault of, it was, it was the fault of the campaign. I mean, it's just a really tough thing, especially to draw out people who, you know, have been kind of sidelined from politics for so long. Um, and he did pretty well, actually, like all things considered. Um, but I also want, I, do you guys remember Randy Bryce in Wisconsin? He was iron stash. He was like <laughs> yeah. the kind of like Bernie Pratt who, you know, like was a union man. And, um, you know, I think he was even a veteran and was kind of this like perfect picture candidate of the guy who was going to like maybe leave some of the Democrats baggage behind and sort of put forward a Bernie, a Bernie crap platform. And he lost too, you know, so it's not, um, I don't think it's like a magic fix, but I, I still am convinced despite all of that, that this is where we have to start. Um, yeah. and hopefully we'll build the momentum. I think with Bryce, I think you're getting back into the, 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 de- de- the actual baggage of Democrats, regardless. Like, yeah. I think yeah. it's like, I'm just thinking about North Dakota. If I was running for politics, in North Dakota, no chance would I run as a Democrat because you're going to get smoked. Um, I mean, it, they used to have these guys who were like centrists and like had the o- very older farmer vote that used to put it Democrats in. But yeah, now they just remember Peppermidge Farms or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Like now, now it's just like, I mean, the cultural baggage against the Democratic Party. I mean, that's where I'm like trained. I'm always a lesser evil voter because like ever since I could vote, it's just like, uh, like the, the the type of people that would run in center mm. races in North Dakota, just these old guys who like even in the newspaper, like I I ran because the party asked me to. Like I don't really, <laughs> and, and it just completely decrepit. But and so like that's I so like that's why like I I. I would love it if something emerged that, like, you know, the ballot line problem, I'm inter- more interested in that, like, trying to solve that. But, like, North Dakota has the example of the um, nonpartisan league, which um, decided we, we have, um, we can run in either primary and just so happened at that point that the Democratic primaries were more useful and they eventually yeah. got co-opted in the Democratic Party. Um, uh, but, yeah, I mean, I would, like, because I think that is a huge drag. The Democratic mm-hmm. Party is just, like, Hillary Clinton personified i think like the i think a lot of i think like martin o'malley would have won 2016 i think hillary just personified the democratic baggage so much in a lot of places that like yeah she lost on the culture front um which is all they were playing on really well jen i really appreciate uh you joining us tonight i hope uh, to do this again sometime soon Likewise, um, this was very fun. Hopefully you guys will make it onto the Jacobin show at some point. Um, yeah, I just want to mention, I feel like this is all coming full circle um, because you guys probably know that um, Michael Brooks was the one who told Boscar at Jacobin to get a YouTube channel in the first yeah. place like years ago. <laughs> and um, yeah, I think he was going to like try to help develop the Jacobin show. Um, and then, of course, obviously you guys are alums of the Michael Brooks show and we're close friends of his. So um, yeah, it's it's kind of a meeting of the minds, I guess. No, I'm really happy to do it. This is how we keep that spirit alive. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. 
Thanks, well, Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, take care. Talk to you soon. See you later. That was great. Yeah, that was fun. Uh, yeah, that was a good conversation. It's always good um, when you're able to go from something very concrete to the big question about why the Democrats suck, uh, which has been <laughs> which, honestly so far. I mean, this is the dominant culture of the Democratic um, elite, right? This woke, I think uh, that's maybe it's like Katie Halper calling it woke washing. Um, but this, washing, yeah. this is That's what we saw crazy. with the um, uh, oh God, I'm blanking on the Prop 22. The, the What's the national Prop 22 we talked about with Marshall Steinbaum? Oh, the um, reset project or whatever it was. The yeah, clean slate project. Right. The clean slate project where it's like, you know, it reminds people what that is if they're listening. So they, it's, it's like the Prop 22 thing where it's like, we're going to figure out a way to get these people represented in quotes. Um, and it had this big, long thing about what I think the left criticizes about certain New Deal policies about leaving out certain workers um uh, often along racial lines and then it says like rather than just extending um those benefits and you know uh, labor rights to those uh, previously excluded workers we're going to just create this new class where they get slightly less of all that stuff and mm-hmm. um yeah less than full benefits uh, uh, i mean i can't remember exactly what the things missing were but significant issues no, we should have brought that up with Jen, honestly, because it's such a great example of what they're doing really successfully is taking the real demands that people are, are having. The system's out of date. It's not working for all of us. It's leaving a lot of people behind. Packaging those criticisms, those general criticisms that aren't tied to any material specifics, it's just a general like, oh, things aren't working. Yeah, of course they are. Are you happy with your life? No. Blah, blah, blah. And then they're attaching that to the most horrible, nasty corporate initiative, which is basically to eradicate 150 years of worker struggle. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's ultimately, it's, I mean, at least the Republicans mean what they say. The Democrats, yeah, yeah this is a complete two faced. Um, and like I said, like, I was really struck by how exactly the um, January, Februarys of the 2016 and 2020 primaries played out, which is it was Warren and the whole like Bernie said women can't be president thing before. And I can't remember what it was in 2016, but it was that Bernie's a sexist for oh, something yeah. he did about Hillary. Right. And it's clockwork. And so like mm-hmm. th- like that is it. And, and I agree um with jen and i think adolf reed also expressed it on a tmbs that i think that is starting to get threadbare and hopefully that it's uh wearing thin but it is still a very strong card for them i think so i mean yeah there's a lot of work that has to be done to to break that down let me think in before we go to the post game um i think in the post game we're going to be doing a uh We'll be moving a couple of stories there. I'm going to talk a little bit. I just want to do, honestly, just real quick, uh, shout out to to Austin, who are showing what happens when you're able to defund the police, um, who are now using some of that money uh, from the police budget to buy a hotel to house uh, homeless people in Austin, which is beautiful. There are some really nasty um things going on with the city council uh, mm. with the kind of liberal block uh, which is now delaying uh, they were supposed to buy two hotels and the liberal block is now delaying uh, one of those to get more community input uh, which basically From means developers take the can down the road and allow um uh, uh, allow these really nasty front groups uh, to uh, to gain more signatures and and uh, confuse more people about what the uh, city council is doing. Okay. But anyways, I don't want the negative to pay it. If you're in Austin, uh, definitely, you know, check out the organizations that are fighting for this and, and understand that the fight isn't over. This is actually like the second level mobilization, which is really hard uh, when you think it's done. So if, for people in Austin, 
this is good news. Um, but also know that the fight is still going on to make sure that these things go through. Is this and, something like people can volunteer for if they're in Austin? Like, are they are they going around? Canvassing yeah, there's or? definitely there's definitely different uh, different groups. I can tweet out some stuff later. Um, you know, definitely get involved with Austin DSA if you are in Austin. They've been doing really incredible work there. Yeah, I would just um, observe. Like, I I noticed there's a problem with the defund. Um, uh, discussion at this point where it is too theoretical, right? And when the, we actually have these case studies, like you're talking about with Austin, like becoming <laughs> familiar and popularizing the details of it, I think can pay more, a lot more dividends than philosophical conversations. I think so. And that's the thing that honestly, I was saying to Matt earlier today, just like, you know, it gets me very frustrated sometimes with like the left media in general that like everyone has been wrapped up in this debate over chief on the police. And there's like a major city, which is, you know, it's not an obscure town or anything like that. It's not a small town. It's in the news constantly is doing it. And it's just like, you don't actually get that much uh, from the big publications or even from a lot of left media. Um, so definitely, you know, and also for people who might not be familiar with our work with TMBS, um, check out my interview that I did with, on TMBS with Seneca Savoy, um, who is an activist in Austin uh, and a member of the DSA there, uh, who was lays out actually how they strategically may push that forward. I'll tweet that out later as well too. But I, you know, I just wanted to touch on that. I think before we go, can we just close out with this Biden clip of him talking about the $2,000 checks? Because I just, I just need to talk. We talked about this a little bit with Jen, but the fact that they are walking back, not only on these $2,000 checks, but now we're talking about, making them more targeted, which for most people means you're going to get screwed. It means that you're going to get left out because means testing is a terrible, terrible way uh, to provide relief to people in the middle of a pandemic. Think about how bad those essentially universal checks, right? Or at least with a very high uh, income cutoff. Think about how hard it was to get those into people's bank accounts. I'm talking about the original $1,200 checks, right? Think about how long that took. It took months. There are people who still haven't gotten that, and they're just going to have to get a tax rebate. On their taxes. That's my brother, right? yeah. Which is a joke. Um, you know. And so, so to say that, okay, actually, we need to add more levels of complexity to this. After I went on the stand, as we're about to play, and said, not 1400 by the way, $2,000 out the door immediately. Um, I just wanted to, I want to play this, and I want people to remember, because there is a full-on psychological warfare operation going on about these checks right now, honestly. By electing John and the Reverend, you can make an immediate difference in your own lives, the lives of the people all across this country, because their election will put an end to the block in Washington, that $2,000 stimulus check. That money that will go out the door immediately, tell people who are in real trouble. Think about what it will mean to your lives. Putting food on the table. Shut up. Paying rent. Paying problems to your mortgage. Paying down the credit card. Paying the phone bill, the gas bill, the electric bill. Just look around. Millions of people in this country are out of work through no fault of their own. No fault of their own. They're yeah, struggling. I mean, all right, yeah, we can cut after that. He said two thousand dollar checks. He then said fourteen hundred dollar checks, and then he's talking about some checks in some form for some people if they meet certain parameters. Don't let them get away with this. 
And honestly, for everybody who was, you know, celebrating initially Joe Biden's administration on the left, y'all should take a second and, and reflect because this guy is a career. It's not even, I'm like, I don't even want to talk about his morals, right? I don't even want to say Joe, because I was about to say Joe Biden is a liar, right? Just don't even think about politics in that way, right? Because it doesn't matter what Joe Biden is, um, what his morals are, his personal morals are. Joe Biden understands he has a responsibility uh, to a very particular class of people in this country. And those are the elites. And you see the elites who are getting very furious about Joe Biden's turn, even symbolically, uh, to helping out people. And now he's trying to walk back. Don't let him do it. And don't get confused with his rhetoric. You need to wait for action for all of these things. Don't give these people an inch because if you start celebrating the boldest platforms from Joe Biden, the boldest platform from the Democrats, when they just put it out on their website, on their blog, right? You're not doing politics because these people will say anything and what we need to start holding them to account for is what they do. Yeah, it's really unbelievable. Like you hear a lot about the distrust between the activist based and the Democratic Party. It's like that will be fixed when you show a pattern of behavior that doesn't cause distrust. Like yeah. and literally nothing else. And so no so not this like this this and that's the like overwhelming like I think a the smart detached view of this $1400 thing, right? Is like there's a distrust there. It's like you need to start delivering otherwise that just like that distrust is your fault. That's not the activist base fault. That's them having basic pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. Um yeah. No, I think that's I think that's exactly it. And I think keep the keep the fight on. I love to see uh, what we've seen from from our from our friends, the folks in the squad who are pushing back. Um, and not only saying $2,000, but $2,000 monthly on Cohen, right? This is ex not the time to do false praise. It's the time yep. to demand for a lot more, right? And that's doing politics. Um, and I, I also want to just tag on that. I appreciate uh, AOC hitting back at Ted Cruz the way that she did, particularly because it it blows up this unity, right? Like. I, the the actual substance of the disagreement is less important to me. The fact that we need to not treat these people like our friends. I mean, I happen to agree yeah. with AOC on the substance, but it's not really that important. Like, there's no, there's, there's, yeah, there, like they, this, where we're at now, and just to update people on where the filibuster is, because this confused me at yeah. first too. So. Uh, then we'll wrap. But um, so it looked at first like McConnell had won because Cinema and Mansion came out and said they're not supportive of the filibuster change. Now that's not new from Mansion and Cinema, and there's probably a few other Democrats that didn't have to you know go public with it. But McConnell actually did fold because what he wanted was Schumer to put in writing a Senate rule that they're not going to fuck with the filibuster. Where it stands now is we have cinema and mansion's word that they won't and mm. which i think like the best case scenario is that now we're staging this little dance that we have to do to once again demonstrate that bipartisanship is a failure and is not a road that we can go down um and and so i think that's the optimistic scenario like i mean fucking a if we if, if they do a bipartisan like deal for 600 dollars checks like do, do, does 
I mean, I guess that that seems valuable to like the uh, Brahmins of centrism now, like that, like because Joe Biden has all along wanted this by these, even for the six hundred dollar check thing. You know, he got in touch with people to say, "Cool it on your demands." Yeah, that's uh, an important point. Um, because he he definitely like this. He has a favorite here, and I think there's some truth to Biden being the guy who goes and you know, where the center of the party is. But he definitely has a favorite, and it's those bipartisan. Um, it's it's that bipartisan squad that can show that we can work across party lines. And bipartisan is a deadly word. Yes. Bipartisan is a deadly word when the two parties are uh, united in their their friendship and fidelity to capital. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But everybody, thank you so much uh, for joining us tonight. Um, For for people who this is the end of your show, definitely consider uh, becoming a patron and you can get a little bit more. Uh, Matt and I are going to go through a couple of the stories we didn't get to. uh, Take some questions. We're going to watch Sorry, David. Just repeat the last couple of things you said because the music was blaring. Oh, <laughs> was shit. Really Sorry. Over top of you. This um, in, in the post game, uh, we're going to be uh, going through a couple more stories that we missed, uh, but also go- having a conversation about the Young Patriots. Uh, we have some really incredible footage of their meetings uh, with the Black Panthers that Matt and I are going to watch. Yeah, I saw and- on Twitter some people talking about this. Apparently, Fred Hampton got together with some white supremacists and they <laughs> determined who their real enemy was. That is, is that-, that is not what happened. And there are a lot of delusional people <laughs> okay. on Twitter. And we're just going to try to set the record right on that one. Um, tomorrow, I'm going to record, and it'll be out soon, a conversation with Brian Muir uh, to talk about his new documentary uh, and also the latest happenings in Brazil. And we'll probably get that out very soon. Um, and uh you know a lot more to look forward to in the next month of february so yeah next week uh i'm recording a uh conversation with ronald reagan uh uh, stephen robbins the immigration lawyer from washington to uh, talk about what biden's executive orders and where he actually like you you listen to like his redirect podcast and it's a, a few different immigration lawyers and Pretty much everyone's burnt out because the immigration system is an entire like it was a mess before Trump and now it's it's still a massive mess. So we're going to talk mm. about what Biden actually could do. So look forward to that next week. Looking good, man. All right, we'll take care, everybody.